Welcome back to another edition of RinkWise, New England's premier hockey podcast produced by the New England Hockey Journal. I'm your host, Stephanie Wood. So excited to have joining us in studio today, Brian DeRocha of Boston University. Welcome. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Now, Mr. Boston University, can I call you that? I guess so, at least for <laughs> at least for this podcast, yes. <laughs> that should be your title, I feel like. So you've done so many things there and just an absolutely remarkable, legendary career. So I'm really going to embarrass you a little bit here, but a mentor of mine as well. And 36 years coming on at BU, that must be so hard to believe. Yeah, it's been a great journey that, that started way back in 1974. It had a couple of uh, breaks in the action, so to say, in that 74 through 78. I was a student athlete there and, and played hockey. A couple years off to start my coaching career, which was really the thing I've done my entire 45 years. It started in the fall of 78 at American National College. And I returned to BU 80 to 85, left for 11 years, seven at Colgate, four at Brown, and then came back for eight more years on the men's side. In the last 19 seasons, I've been part of the women's program one year to put the program and the infrastructure and everything together, and then 18 years of of a season. And if you're going to call me Mr. Boston University, (laughs) we don't want to have any disrespect to one of my mentors and a guy who threw a few lifelines out there for, for job opportunities, Coach Jack Parker, right. and we always recognize those four Olympians who I was lucky enough to call teammates. You know, I, I wasn't that good of a goaltender, but if you have four players like that and another 14, 15 that were on the ice with them, I just had to take up space back in front of the net. <laughs> well, I think to be able to play at Boston University, that's a pretty... That in and of itself is a pretty remarkable accomplishment. It's such a esteemed program, both on the men's and the women's side. And so unique that I think that you've been able just to do literally a little bit of everything Boston University hockey, which is really rare. Most people that we have coming in here have been sort of specifically on the boys' side or the girls' side, but you start as a player there, coach on the boys' side, than the girls' side. And so take us back to your, your playing days. What was that like? Sure. I, I, I guess the thing I want to start with, and the people in this era, this generation, probably the last at least two decades, could not fathom what it was like back in the day when if, if you lived graphically in Springfield, Massachusetts, I grew up in Longmeadow, you played the town to your east, to your west, to your north, and your south. Sure. We never traveled to even Worcester to play a game, let alone come to Boston. We never went to Canada when we were young kids. And it wasn't just hockey. It was all sports. That's the way it was. And I always talk about around here because I've been here enough over the last 40 years that if you were a real good player north of Boston, unless you made it to the Garden, you didn't get to play against that hot shot from Hingham or Duxbury or the Cape or wherever. And so right. uh, things were very geographic. But I got super lucky in that a gentleman by the name of Gary Deneen and others started a junior program. And that's interesting story for those people that I went to the first Saturday, but I was a high school senior. And, and again, not being familiar with junior hockey it was kind of like I'm not going to go back to the second trial which was the following Saturday because I was letting my high school team down there as a senior important position and we had a pretty good team my dad said go back the second day well I sort of 
was a little bit reluctant, but I went the second day. Gary Deneen shows up, who's coming off of a great three-year run as a 30-year-old guy, coach, wow. general manager, American League. I was introduced to the owner who said, you will not pay a cent to play here at all. And we were going to travel to Boston every week, one game, and have a home game in Springfield with a team at that point called the Springfield Olympics. And the last thing was the assistant coach handed me a pair of new goalie pads. So I was hook, line, and sinker, thanks to my dad, (laughs) and the exposure that you never would get as a Western Mass person all of a sudden was there, and I had a couple of chances here to play, never really thinking I was going to play at Boston University. I was a high school kid from Western Mass, happy to go to school there, and you know, Things unfolded pretty nicely for me in that we did have great teams during the four years I was at BU, but there was a need for a goalie because two great ones graduated, Joe Roblar, Betty Walsh, and I had Pat Devlin on myself riding shotgun and got a chance to play and was very grateful that I had that opportunity because I I truly didn't believe it was going to happen, but I figured I'll get the education, go to a neat place like Boston, and here I am still on the ComAv (laughs) 40-something years later. You certainly are. You certainly have made your mark there. And a lot in that retelling that story because just a lot to how things have changed on the the youth side of things now. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that firsthand. Just and when you when you did start goalie, what age were you when you started playing goalie? Again, I was much later than the people today. My dad, which is very interesting. That's right. My dad did have a rink in the backyard, and then was down the street that had three boys. I had two brothers, so we had six of us right there between the two families. And as we got older, the rinks got a little bigger, so we skated. But I was not a classic skater. My brothers were better than I was, and so I would kind of gravitate to the net. But we're talking about the outdoor portable net, <laughs> tennis balls, maybe a puck, maybe a rubber puck, whatever. But a Around 11 years old, they put a rink up near the high school, outdoor rink. Again, something that you can't have in this day and age. And we skated down there, started the team, and kind of joined the league in Springfield area that allowed for our team, Longmeadow, to have a youth group. And it was 11 years old, I'm to the best of my memory. And when I was 13, I was in high school. And so it wasn't a long youth career, so to say. And high school hockey started, and I played three years at Longmeadow High School, and then again played with the junior program. So things were much simpler. Things were such e- so much easier that you would, again, have an outdoor rink in your town, and you'd go six miles over to the rink, either at the Eastern States Coliseum or over by American and National College. It was a, an MDC type of rink, and that's where we played. The good old days of hockey, for sure, back then. It was. It was, like I say, very very much simpler. And to be able to be out in in people's yards was fantastic, or even on a park that was flooded. And we even, Crape's Longmeadow Country Club had a beautiful pond on the sixth hole, and uh, it froze (laughs) so perfectly because it was pre-global warming, of course. and, And things really did freeze in Western Mass for a while. And then a thing called liability got in the way. And one of the best rinks you could skate on or ponds you could skate on was gone because they took all the water out, drained it. And so you were scratching and clawing a little bit more to get that sort of fun outdoor ice. But thanks to Don Bridge, who was a neighbor of mine, the, the aforementioned family, he went from his backyard rink to the Enfield Twin Rinks to owning the Springfield Indians. So it was a guy that was committed to hockey, and I was lucky to be a, a neighbor of theirs. 
That's great. Yeah, really unique story. Yeah, And with the pond hockey, I wish we saw more of that these days. And we can maybe towards the end, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the youth and some of the things that you're noticing. But I think just on your career, just so we have the full picture. So for your career, men's hockey, playing career at Boston University, and then how did you sort of transition into the coaching realm after that? Sure. Again, I mentioned the gentleman, Wayne Lachance. He played up at Clarkson University. He was a native of Espanola, Ontario. And he was in Western Mass after he stopped playing. He played in the American League, was a teammate, and then was coached, I think, by Gary Deneen. And he got connected with the rinks down in Western Mass and, and directed one of the rinks with Don Bridge. But he was the gentleman that said, if you don't want to continue to play, you can come coach with me at AIC. And I'd always wanted to coach. I have a great uncle named Leo DeRocher, who was a Hall of Fame baseball manager. Most of his career statistics are as a manager, but he did play. And he was a super, super colorful guy. So maybe that was part of me wanting to coach. But I was also the kid who sat at the tree belt, sat at the park, which was right across the street from my house. I only had to walk 50 feet, and I was in the playground. And back in the day, (laughs) football in the fall, hockey hopefully somewhere in the winter, baseball in the spring, and summer would be a catch-all of maybe just the park being active with things. But I would go watch the older kids just sort of praying. They'd ask me to run out for a pass, or (laughs) they'd see if I could catch a baseball or maybe take a swing and hit. And I always saw myself as kind of a a student of the game. And that just carried on throughout my life, even in the end of my playing days when I was playing at BU. There were a couple years where we would alternate. I did with Pat Devlin in my sophomore year. I did with Jimmy Craig in my senior year. And those games I wasn't playing. I was really studying and watching. And I think Jack Parker recognized me, saw me doing that. And maybe it was part of the reason he thought, hey, I might bring this guy back a couple of times, not just once in 1980, but later in 1996 when I came back as the associate head coach. But I did. I had a passion and I had an understanding. And I always thought if I could do it, well, let's do it. And the first hurdle I remember was after getting in for two years, there wasn't really any money. And I said, I'm going to get into teaching or into sales or whatever it is. And Jack called and said, I have a second assistant spot, which was interesting because Steve Cedarchuk, who is a, another guy that great, I would consider a mentor, yeah. a great guy. Yeah, awesome. Steve was still teaching school part-time and wasn't full-time at Boston College. And here's BU deciding to have a second full-time position. So I got my f- foot in the door, so to say, at, at the, the highest level in Division One, where you, you really hope you can get to. But when you look at it, there's only so many spots. And again, I was I was lucky to get there after being a guy who was, was very passionate from, like I say, a young age to maybe maybe be a coach. That's great. Yeah, so the, the passion and the interest was certainly there. And I, I really think, Brian, that with the to really make a great coach, you have to have that passion. And it's it's you don't see that sometimes in everybody, right? A lot of people play the game, but I, I think the best coaches, you, you, they just have that fire and that passion. And because really, I mean, to stay in it for so long, I think that's really an important thing that really helps drive you to be a, a great coach. That's right. And, and, you know, my passion might be visibly different than other people because I don't think I'm as high strung as some people. <laughs> I would agree with that. <laughs> there are people that are, are One really, level, yeah, really <laughs> wired, people that are super intense, people that are on the officials all the time, people that 
or chewing nails or whatever you want to use as an analogy. But I think I'm one of those people that even in sort of chaotic moments, I'm still studying. I'm still trying to figure out what's real and and what do I have to address. But again, I, I certainly have the love and the passion and, and, and they go together. Again, my passion's quieter, but I think my love for sports in general and, and hockey and coaching is as deep as anybody's. Oh, that's that's wonderful and certainly a, a wonderful trait. I, I know that I'm sure a lot of your, your former players and coaches and, and, and such that would say about you, just your demeanor, just always so so great and the delivery and, and, and such. And really with when you started coaching, how wonderful and fortunate, almost like hitting the lottery in a way that your first coach that you worked with was was Jack Parker. Right. Yep. Mr. BU, I think we've we've said you're yeah. you're also Mr. BU, but as well, mm-hmm. Jack Parker, who had such a legendary career there on the men's side. Yeah, no, and Jack was somebody who, again, I observed through my four years as a player. I probably communicated him a little bit in the couple of years I started at American National College. And but when I came back with him, what I always saw in Jack and, and recognizes him is that he was sort of an in-town wise guy. Not, not mean to pick on him in any way, but he always had the upper hand with the kids. So there were p- kids who would come in and think, okay, I can outsmart this guy or I can talk this guy. But he knew everything you were doing and he was always on top of the kids that way. Uh, but, you know, as a coach, he saw the game at a high level while it was going on. A lot of people miss part of it or miss half of it, but that was him. While he was good at X's and O's, that wasn't by any means the only thing. It was really what he saw out there, what he recognized, and again, as I said, how he could handle people, control people, because he was very good and very witty and super smart. And the, the kids recognize that. So rarely did you have people challenge him. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And so how long did you spend on the men's side with BU? It was five years there, 80 to 85, and then came back for eight more years from 1996 to 2004. And, and speaking of Jack Parker, there was probably a different person I came back to in 96 to 04 because it was a little bit his way or the highway. And sure. it was super, super intense. But it, as he had, had come along, he started to change a little bit and he sort of saw the game just a little bit different. And if I would give one person a lot of credit for that, it might be Ben Smith, who later crossed over into the women's side, was with three different Olympic teams because Ben brought some different things via his time at Yale or his time at UMass or his time with Tim Taylor, whatever it is. And I think he he helped change Jack and and gave Jack a different perspective. We just the other day, I was talking to, to one of the former players in Tampa and I said, you remember when you made that beautiful pass from the left wing to the right wing and you were so proud of yourself and you had sent your right winger in on a breakaway and the whistle would blow and he'd be getting on the back checker who wasn't there instead of clapping his hands for those two forwards who just right. made a beautiful play. And, yeah. <laughs> but that that was how it was. And I think as time went on, he recognized, okay, there's there's different things that are happening out here and and sometimes you got again our positive applaud those people and so it was fun to see that individual the other day and kind of throw out that example of of how things were and how they changed when I came back until 2004 indeed and so i think we said before the show so the the women's program at BU has been in existence for 18 years and you were 
named the first head coach of, of that program. So Correct. as they transitioned at the time from women's club to division one, which is a, that's a pretty hefty leap. Uh, mm-hmm. So how did that all come about? And how did you approach that with that transition? Because it's, it's huge, as we said, from club to the division one level. Right. Well, I think things were done right at, at Boston University in that uh, there was a, a, a buffer year, so to say, where all I did was look for players. They asked me, do you want to coach the club team? And I said, no, I'd rather not. I said, I think I really need to learn the landscape of where young ladies play, who coaches them, what's the structure. And uh, so it gave me time to do that. They also didn't wait to see if we were going to be any good in four or five years, they put the resources in place. A pair of assistant coaches were going to be there. The facility was going to be there. Recruiting budgets were going to be solid. So all the things you kind of look for to measure their interest were in place. And, of course, the history of the university. And, and around 2005, BU had really started to escalate as an academic institution. It was a, a, a solid school maybe when I went there, but then it just went through the roof. And so what better spot would you want to be than a place that has all that right there, ready to go, ready for you. And uh, as far as the team, we took a little bit of a slow approach. There's different ways to start a program. Do you want to implement this many scholarships or twice as many? Or do you want to front load it and then maybe decrease some, so to say, give, give a kid more money in the beginning, a little less each year, but they go home happy and you continue to have the resources. But we sort of did it in a slow step where each year for the first four years, we gave about four scholarships out, four and a half, and you get to 18 scholarships, which is the maximum. And each year we had a pretty good uptick, but a slow one, six to fifth to fourth to third to second to first, and, uh, and where we finished in the regular season. And I was I was proud of that, but a lot of it was those young ladies that came and played there that were fantastic student-athletes and, more importantly, real good hockey players that we were there. And uh, thanks to the assistant coaches who were, who were there in the beginning, Erica Silva and Kirsten Matthews, because they sort of followed my lead but really had to get out there and, and do the recruiting and be there for the young ladies because I needed every ounce of their knowledge and their help of how things work and uh, they were followed after three years by Katie LaChapelle and Allison Coomey and off and running we were. Oh that's that's wonderful and just a lot in there really in that story because BU escalated pretty quickly in my opinion so I think that it sounds like a great strategy that you took to approach it but when you first started as you said the, the difference between the men's and the women's side so I'm I'm in the women's side now, you know, a lot, and I, I know that landscape really well. But if I had to all of a sudden switch to the men's side, I feel like it would really be a big learning curve for me <laughs> to really, as you said, like understand, like, where am I going to recruit? Where are the top programs? Like, was that was that a big transition for you? When that happened again, because I was probably in year twenty-seven when I started of my college coaching. <laughs> Few years experience. I had been in a lot of hockey ranks, and I already started having people that I knew having daughters play in the game because of the growth of women's hockey. 
Believe it or not, there were people that were that I knew that had sons or daughters coming to play, but I felt like I had the experience and the knowledge. And <clears throat> when I went to these places, I found out that they play in the same location. So in New England, it's the prep schools. So it's public high school. In Canada, they play in their their regional areas. So they play in Kitchener, or play in Toronto, or play yep. in Ottawa, et cetera, et cetera. And that was probably the big difference that I had some of that knowledge. But I still had to learn about a lot about, I think, women. Now, I have three daughters at home and a wife, but I still had to learn about them as I probably as athletes because right. none of my daughters were the highest level athletes and didn't plan travel teams. And that's where, again, Kirsten and Erica helped me a ton. But the game was the same. They could stick, they could skate, they could move a puck. They thought the game well, they shared the puck well. And so there were a lot of great parts of it that really were parallel and once I learned where people were and what I thought was the landscape it made it that much easier. That's wonderful and again a a great progression to be you which just like the men's side was was known and still is as you, you turn it into a nationally recognized program national status big contender in Hockey East and you get to coach some of the best female players in my opinion in the world like Mary Philip Poulin if I'm pronouncing that correctly my opinion one of the best players in the world Tara Watchorn so it must have been just a wonderful feeling and progression to take again a club program and progress it to that level I mean that's just some of the big time players in in women's hockey yeah it certainly was and I I think Things were slightly different then in that you had some programs that hadn't quite taken the next step. I think of a Quinnipiac that now on both sides, men's and women, is obviously a a powerhouse. Guys winning the championship there this year, kudos to them. But the bottom line is they were playing in a, a state rink or a town rink for a while and others that built new buildings and places. RIT is another one that's got a, a brand new gorgeous building all through the, the leagues in the east here again. And so there's been bigger challenges coming along. But when we started, again, if we did a good job, we made uh, good decisions. I felt like BU had the cachet that would attract people there. And and it certainly did. And, and you, you along the way also have to have a couple good bounces. And we had a couple good bounces with transfers, not just people that came there like the Kohanchucks or the Watchorns or the Poolins, but you had others who transferred from different places in Isabel Menard or a Chen Wakefield and and many more. So it was it was nice to have the, the sort of pieces come together. But even on the ice you had to get a little luck and I'll bet we did, even though we <laughs> made plenty of it for ourselves. Hard work and a few bounces, right? Along That's right. along the way. We were talking a little bit off off the show before we started and Really remarkable, and I, I think this speaks to your character and everyone who knows you, the incredible job that you have done mentoring such a strong group of female coaches, and particularly ones that have gone on to be extremely successful and now head coaches at the Division One level. And someone that's in this field pretty heavily, I, I don't think I've really come across anyone else that has done that kind of job that you have. And that's, to me, that's got to be just another wonderful accomplishment that you feel just with such a successful career overall. 
Well, thank you. And and I look at it as the, the people I have hired, that they're the real rock stars here <laughs> on this journey. And they're the ones that became head coaches. I was just somebody that they worked with. They maybe watched. They might have asked questions. But as you go down the line here, Tar Watcher, who was a former player and was just named the head coach at Boston University, replaced me. She spent a couple of years at Stonehill. Kirsten Matthews has been with me two different times and was a 13, 14 year, highly successful coach up at St. A's, Liz Keedy, who came with us for four years and is up at Dartmouth doing a great job getting things rolling. And and Katie LaChapelle, who not only has done a great job at Holy Cross and and paid her dues at, I think it's four other schools besides Boston University. And she's had a great run with national teams and national programs as well. And Molly Fitzpatrick, while she's only been with us for one year or was with us for one year, I think she had the confidence to go and and take a head coach's job, be it in Division Three, not at Division One like the others. But that's really the route I think you go more often than not, because if you get that stamp on your resume for three years, four years, five years, that's the thing that is going to give you an opportunity when you get in front of an athletic director. Not to say somebody can't go from an assistant to a head coach. But it gets more and more challenging when you have two full-time assistants and you've got outside people coming in. There was a day when there was one assistant, Mm. so that cut the field in half pretty much as to who could come in. And you throw in very successful D3 coaches that have moved up to Division One, And again, it's a crowded bus. So to, to have those people be such special people, such great learners, people who are willing to put their time in this game and uh, not be afraid to be recruiters for a little bit extra uh, number of years, I'm super proud of them. And uh, trust me, I follow them pretty closely. And I think I work pretty hard to keep in touch with them. Oh, no, no question. And I'm sure, again, just you've been just nothing but a wonderful role model and and provide such outstanding mentorship. And Brian, I think that as we've seen such great progressions on the girls game over the years, and you've certainly seen that firsthand, I really think that that's how it's happened. It's, It's people like yourself who have provided so much experience and knowledge. And as the game has been continued to grow that sort of training the next generation, if you will, of, of coaches. And now I, I do think that there's a, a, a large amount of very qualified female coaches that are ready to take on those roles now. And we didn't necessarily see that 20 years ago. Absolutely. And, and again, you get back to that real simple number, one assistant, two assistants. <laughs> and, and even the the volunteers that get into it early because unfortunately sometimes you have to do that and I don't think it's any different than the the real world where there's a lot of college grads who take an internship for a year and if they do a good job and impress somebody they move up the ladder. I've, I've also not been afraid to to hire some really qualified division three people and I look for them to be successful too, not because they're hanging out with me, but because they're rubbing elbows with other people and they're getting their foot in the door, so to say, uh, as time goes on. But the, again, the sheer volume, the, the sheer opportunities that have been out there for great female student athletes, 
becoming coaches, they're taking advantage of it. And whether you're going to clinics, whether you're going to professional development, whether you're doing different things, I think it's really important because you learn at every facet the most recent thing. And here's another kid I'm super proud of is Carolyn Pilches with the Chicago Blackhawks and the aforementioned Mary Phillips right. Woolen is yeah. with the Montreal Canadiens. So professional involvement now. Yeah, and, and I got to tell you, as stories go, Carolyn was a little bit nervous, but I'm happy to say that myself and her her husband really said the exact same thing to her. When did you think you were going to be on the playbook of the Chicago Blackhawks? <laughs> and if you don't like it in two years, you can go to the GM and say, look, I really would like to be relocated. I love the Hawks. I love you people. And he would probably get you a job right with the Hawks and you'd still be in the big time where there's a few more dollars being tossed around there's a lot of recognition but the bottom line is if you go there and you do well people are going to recognize it so having the courage and having the belief that i can do it in different levels is super important are you are you running a uh, a program all by yourself there are people close to me right now that are doing that and that's that's what you want so hopefully those people continue to have the the faith and the confidence and the and the smarts to do it because as you said there's a lot of them they're very talented it's really wonderful just to listen to you talk about your your former players and, and such and you mentioned you had three daughters but really you have dozens I think <laughs> right that I'm sure kind of feels very similar to, to watch them and how proud you are of them super lucky because they are they're part of the family so to say and they're, they're people that I'll keep in touch with it's their birthday I'm usually wishing somebody a, a happy birthday I always did try as I went to rinks or went to camps to catch up to different people along the way. And uh, I think if you throw enough lines in the wire, they're, they're going to reach out to you. And that has happened as well. But again, right now, there's plenty of guys, ladies that have kids playing. And it might be a, a young daughter, or it might be a, a young son, but it, it brings an unbelievable smile to your face when you run into those people. And if you stay at the rink, as I have all my life, eventually, most of those people get back to a rink <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> I can I can give you a pretty good resume on where people are a pretty good understanding of where people are working or what they're doing and it's it's because they do end up at the rank a lot of times and so speaking of which so speaking of one of your former players tara watchhorn so we had her on the show back in the fall she took over her her first division one program at stonehill and of course coming on the heels of your wonderful remarkable career at Boston University upon retirement, your new successor. So how does that make you feel? I'm sure, again, just another proud moment for you to see your former player. Absolutely. Absolutely. A super exciting time. And it it was a nerve wracking time for me because I had a a lot of people that were connected through interviews and I I was pulling for everybody to get the the spot. But in the end, one person gets the spot. And, you know, Tara, as an alum, you're super excited for in that way. As a as a young hockey mind, she's very sharp as a skills type of coach she was always very impressive that way and she got uh, an education in a short two years down there at Stono because she had to start from scratch and then she had to run a team but she's also had the the international national team experience so she's got a deeper resume than pipe people might think looking at her age or looking where she's been because she did have three or four years 
five years where she was playing an awful lot and maybe not doing the coaching side of it. But uh, I think everybody's excited. Everybody's, you know, ready for her to take the reins and uh, she's going to, she's going to make her path. She's going to cut her success. And uh, she'd probably be the first one to tell you that not only is it Boston University who's going to assist her, but hopefully a whole bunch of real good hockey players and student athletes that'll be part of Boston University. No question. And just a great perspective she brings as well. And I'm sure great for the student athletes to see. She's also a former alumni of the program and had a very successful career herself. And sometimes, Brian, I think that that also makes a bit more of an impact on on the players, that they can see someone that's been there and done it and been in their shoes at one point. Absolutely. The kids certainly gravitate to the to the head coach to talk and, and want to know a little bit about them. They, the same thing for the assistant coaches. And, and again, when you check a few different boxes, you know, that even boxes that a lot of people won't ever check because who's going to be the Olympian? Very, very few. Who's going to be a national team? A little bit more, but not a whole bunch of people. And But when you start to get to an alum and somebody that, you know, you're rubbing elbows with, that's really, really exciting. And when it comes into the recruiting side of it, I think there's cachet there. If I go back and think of myself, it was probably my experience that was my cachet because I could talk to talk with a lot of people because I had been rinks in Minnesota and in Canada and around New England. But, you know, Tara's again had a a short 10, 12 years, but a lot of hockey in there. And she's going to be able to communicate with so many people and they'll be impressed because she has a level of confidence that's there. And again, getting a few of those bounces, having a (laughs) couple of the right people say yes, always helps you. Sure does. And Brian, it's, I'm sure you, you would agree, like over the years, you meet a lot of different people. And I know when I, I met Tara, there's just, there's some people that you just meet and you just, you get a feel after you act with them that you just know no matter what certain people are going to go off and be incredibly successful and I really felt like she was one of them and some big shoes to fill there for sure in that position with you but no question I think the program's in really good hands. I, I do too, and, and she'll she'll do it her way. That's the the big message you want to send to people is that you can look at the three, four, five, six different people that you coached with. I had the chance to be with Jack Parker, Terry Slater, Bob Gaudet, just to name a few. Wayne Lachance at AIC, but in the end, I had to be Brian DeRocher, and and Tara Watchern's going to have to be Tara Watchern out there. She can't try to be any of the coaches she's been around. She's got to make good decisions. And you have to you have to do things that you remember easily. We go to how many lectures, we read how many books oh, yeah. about the great coaches. Yeah. But you know, True. maybe you can take one line or one paragraph either remember that, but you can't remember the book and you probably can't be them. So as as long as she's true to herself and uses the qualities that got her there and continues to learn as she goes along, good days are ahead for sure. Oh, indeed. And so back back to your career. I mean, such a long time and you've seen just so many changes, I'm sure, along the way with the game. And you probably have a couple really great stories, I'm sure, <laughs> and probably too many, right? But what are really some of your, your best stories or some of your best memories? And again, I know that that's a tough question because all those years of experience, there's just too many, right? But 
Sure, a couple stand out in your head. Yeah, you, 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 you're probably asking me to rattle my brain a little bit, but because <laughs> I've been kind of going down the path of, of retirement and getting away from the rink, this isn't the first interview I've done. So <laughs> I had to think about that a couple of times. But w- one I, I, I've told before, or a couple I might have told before, I'll repeat. The first day we ever had... Uh, hockey at BU. It was a grand day. Everybody had brand new equipment. The lights were bright. We were ready to go and have a good hour and 15 minute skate. Assistant coaches were in place. And I look from across the rink and I see tears on the cheeks of this individual. And I'll leave the name aside, but (laughs) I, I kind of wander over and kind of lean in there and say, what's the matter? And, and the, the sort of the sniffles, the tears, and the, the choked up voice were letting me know that the gloves were were not the right gloves because the junior gloves were asked for. And my equipment manager said, no, you can't use junior gloves. You're <laughs> going to have a wrist broken. And the pants were a size and a half too big. So I left the ice for a second. And I said, make sure that tomorrow or the next day or the next day, she has junior gloves our, and we do whatever we can with these pants. And that was the bigger job because junior gloves, you could get off the shelf or get there quickly. Sure. But the pants had to be altered a couple of times <laughs> and changed the pockets because they had to be altered enough where it was just a big project. But they got done and uh, all of a sudden there were smiles on her face. So <laughs> that was that was certainly one of the, the stories I can remember. And another one I, I tell is, I would say you have to have a little bit of luck, and I think I've mentioned that already in this interview. But we played in 2010, and we had a good team, and new head coach Tara Watcher and let's slap shot go from the point in the second overtime, and it goes in the upper left-hand corner, and we're all cheering and excited, and we just won our first hockey's championship in our, I think, our fifth year of existence. And if you go back and you look at it, it glanced off the right hip of the defenseman on our opponent, the UConn defenseman, um, who, if my recollection is correct, is all-American player. She was going to play the, play the BU kid in front of the net, and it glances off her hip and just moves enough where the goalie couldn't get it. Mm. Fast forward two years forward, and we're down to Cape, and Providence plays the absolute perfect game that you could play. They're up one nothing with 10 seconds left, and we fire a puck, goes off a of Providence skate into the net to oh tie the game with seven seconds left. We go into overtime. Jen Wakefield spins around, fires a puck, goes off a of Providence skate in the net. We win 2-1. to one. So there's two hockey's championships. We haven't made a nine-bell play. We haven't <laughs> shot a puck directly in the net. And uh, if you don't need a little luck, then maybe I didn't watch enough hockey games. I better go back and watch another couple hundred. But I, I just think those are the things that are, are part of the game and very close to me in, in my memory sense certainly have formed great memories over the years and as I say coach sometimes you just got to throw that puck on net right yeah absolutely no you you just never know because it's it's not all about what you draw up or where you're going and if I can maybe give you one other story I'm crossing over back to the please men, do men, we love it men's side of the game but I played with a fantastic guy by the name of Terry Slater or, or coach with him up at Colgate from 1885 and the late Terry Slater because very suddenly tragically at 54 years old he passed away in 1991 while I was still there but he was more of a psychologist than he was the X's and O's coach 
and uh, he was getting mad at his team once because they were trying to be too fancy. And the next day we all come to the rink and there was a, a cement area just as you got into the rink and the entire area was covered with Tonka toys, little Tonka <laughs> trucks. And he came in with a flannel shirt and a flannel hat, trucker's hat. And he said, hey, we got to be a little more hardworking, blue collar like those guys. And uh, I think his message got across <laughs> to the kids because they, they took on a whole different persona the rest of the year. But uh, a great master psychologist and a fantastic person who is another story I'll never forget. <laughs> Love it. Hey, as they say, sometimes if you, you want something done right, you got to do it yourself sometimes, right? That's right. And well, I think so since we also just have you here, we won't keep you too much longer, but we'll use certainly your expertise and your years of experience. So I mentioned to you before the show that we recently did a podcast where we gave our audience some tips for the off season. And uh, Brian, I think one of the things I mentioned on that was I thought that that's something the off season is something that has probably maybe changed the most over the years or certainly changed a lot. And uh, so from one coach here, seen a lot of things over the years. So what would be some of your things? Like maybe let's focus on the older levels that the high school age kids at their recruitable stage looking to get recruited like what would be maybe some good tips that you would give for them in the off season sure I think if you start with the older kids it's important that they're aware of the general rules uh, when it comes to the NCA that knowing when you could talk to a coach making sure you've got the addresses of the of the respective schools making sure you expand your horizons make sure you know a little bit about nutrition know a little bit about strength training if you educate yourself on those areas you're giving yourself a, a good start to the game I also believe that there's a time and place for rest. You're still training when you're riding a bike, when you're learning to lift some weights, when you're studying how to eat properly, and you're controlling yourself, your destination a little bit, but you're getting away from skating. Mm -hmm. uh, when this thing called labrum surgery or hip injuries started, it seemed everybody was a goaltender, but now I see it in skaters, and the only thing I can think is we're skating too many months during sure. the year. So if, if you can play a little baseball, play a little lacrosse, do it. I know it's hard on families. It's hard on the kids sometimes because their buddies are playing or their youth program that they play is playing. But hopefully you can be strong enough to say no and hopefully develop in other areas. So that, that would be one of the things, or a couple of things I think I would hope that the older kids can can study and and even just putting together your own resume if you go out and put a one-page resume together I don't think you have to have a a glossy one that's coming from a sure. massive company at a massive price get that out to people via emails or even snail mail mm -hmm. and as long as it gets there most coaches read everything do they fall up and everything no because it's it's hard it's time consuming if you get thousands of them but i'll tell you we read 95 or 100 percent of them that's that's great feedback and great great to know as well and definitely the the break is necessary right at every age level right every every level of athlete for sure and you're you're right Brian I think we are seeing a little bit more of like the the hip injuries with the with the hockey players and not just with goalies and I think it is great advice that take that break in the off season and structure a training regimen that's going to work well for for that particular athlete sure and and if possible there's even nice to have a break during the season sometime sure. we have a big break at the holidays where the kids still 
try to do a little bit of training, but they also get a little rest. They also let the body get some rest, and it usually pays dividends because I don't think anybody sees the hockey in January or February being much different than October and November when early in the year they've come in guns blazing and ready to go and training through the off season. But after taking sometimes as, as much as almost two weeks off, yeah. they come back and five, six, seven practices, and they're playing pretty darn well. That's good to know at the Division One level, right? Really such a high level that the, the break and the rest is, is very necessary to it be is. successful. Yep. Now, rest is is super important for the kids. And so to, to be able to do that, and I think to be able to do at least one cross sport is great. I know around here, the prep schools easily make you do two sports and, right. and sometimes make three, but there's enough people playing junior hockey or playing in long competitive seasons and where you can find space to take advantage of it. Yeah, and you mentioned that back with your upbringing, you just uh, it was just sort of a more normal or natural part of the adolescent experience, right? If you will that in the winter you did skating, spring you did baseball, fall it was a little bit of football. And that's a hundred percent correct, but unfortunately, I don't think we're going back to my time. <laughs> but, it, but again, it it was simpler, it was easier, and 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 because everybody else was doing it, hey, that's how it went. And but now you've got a lot of different things going on, and you know how many people go to a skating camp, and then they're going to stick handling shooting camp, and then they're going to off ice weight training camp, and it's hard to balance real hard to balance is, is for families and so and, and nobody's an expert all too often you have mm. you have families that unfortunately I, I haven't had an older brother or an older sister who got recruited or was was in this situation but so much is decided by the the big guy upstairs that you have to have a certain level of of, of given ability and then you work at it you you shape yourself as a competitor but it doesn't mean you're going to get three steps faster in any sport so again keep working hard and and keep loving the game and again try to get a little bit of downtime because sometimes it does refresh your body and you come back with much more joy much more passion forget your skills you come back with those two things that go a long ways in in any sport and really they're important in the in the real world wherever you end up working you better be passionate about that that area that product that whatever well coach just absolutely wonderful perspective and insight and i think i can speak for all of us that everybody listening is going to have learned quite a bit from from hearing from you today well thank you very much you always hope you can shed a few memories maybe a few tidbits that are important for these kids who are loving the game and playing the game and, and most importantly i send thanks to not only you people who are having me here but all those people that made me look good over the years <laughs> as a as a so-so coach but i was lucky and forever grateful We'll make sure that they can listen in on this and they they get a copy of the clip but a truly remarkable journey and congratulations on an absolutely amazing career. And the game thanks you. Really, if it wasn't for people like you, I don't think we would see as many advancements as we have. So, And I hope that you do get a chance to reflect on everything. I'm sure you will. And again, we can't thank you enough for sharing your stories with us today. Greatly appreciated. And that does it for this edition of RinkWise. Our podcast is produced by David Yaz. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Any Hockey Journal and subscribe online at hockeyjournal.com. I'm your host, Stephanie Wood. RinkWise is a Siemens Media Production.